Welcome back to the service. We're going to begin this next part, setting up for Pastor Kenny, um, by reading the scripture of the day. It comes from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25 in the NIV version. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she found out that she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of God, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because, she is conceived, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until, he gave, until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Sylvia. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing today? I, uh, my name is Kenny. I'm one of the pastors here. We're very glad to have you today. I have to begin with a phrase um, uh, that sometimes you just have to say, not today, devil, um, because we had a little bit of craziness going on today. We had another um, issue with our building where we normally get in around 8.05, 8.10, and we got to set up and set all this up and practice in the kids' rooms and we got in about 9.20, I think, and still, it was awesome. <laughs> I mean, my heart is full. This worship team, how about this worship team leading us in worship? And then, you know, they say the devil's always in the sound system, and, uh, you know, he tried again on that third song, but no, not today, devil. Not today. Am I right? Praise God. My goodness. Well, another thing I got to say is Merry Christmas or Happy Advent or um, however you want to say that. There's a debate that always goes on um, this time of year. It goes back about uh, 200 years or so. It's a theological debate, and it's um, when is the appropriate time when you're allowed to play Christmas music <laughs> at home? And I know that that's just driving wedges deep into the heart of every family. I know I, I was talking to Todd yesterday, and he said Thanksgiving morning is the official start time that they've decided after much debate. And uh, so, yeah, that's uh, some, some of us earlier, some of us uh, later. But um, all joking aside, Christians are celebrating Advent, which means uh, coming or means arrival. And we're celebrating the first coming of Jesus that um, God came to us and what that has meant for the world. And as I was preparing this week, I got to be honest, I was not in the Christmas spirit that much. Um, I don't know, maybe that's because it was still November most of this week. I, but 
I knew I was going to preach on something related to Advent. Maybe it's the busyness I'm thinking of and I'm not ready. And some of you guys know I'm in school. Maybe it's finals. But it's like I'm not ready to feel all holly and jolly and my troubles don't feel miles away. And, um, but the reality is that at the center of Christmas is not these feelings. It's not a set of feelings that we conjure up and, and feel. It's actually at the center of Christmas is this um, set of truths that we remember and we believe, and that's what brings this uh, joy and this warmth to our hearts during this season. And uh, actually, if you think about Christmas, um, a lot of people just think about it uh, in a sentimental way. And if you think about it in just a sentimental way, that's probably one of the prime ways that you are actually going to miss out on the actual joy of the season. If you just think of it in terms of Uh, Not bad things, but just the good things that you normally do on the holidays and the feeling. Because this holiday is real and gritty and earthy and dirty (laughs) and messy. It's as real as a baby being born. And, um, you know, as I was thinking this week, there's a scene in the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Anyone ever seen that? Yeah? Anyone ever seen that like 15 times? Yeah. (laughs) And um, so George Bailey, he's this do-gooder he, in a small town, and he helps people out. He helped his brother when, when they were little kids. His brother fell in the ice, uh, ice lake, and um, he s- saved him, rescued him. And he, he, helped, he helped a pharmacist when he was a teenager. He worked for a pharmacist, and the pharmacist was going to accidentally poison someone, but George caught it and helped him, and, and uh, everything was fine. And he does all these things, but in the movie, things keep falling apart for him, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and it... Um, it, the climax of it is he wants to end it all, and he's on a bridge, and he wants to um, be done with his life. And uh, in the movie, there's a guardian angel that comes to help him, and he tells the guardian angel, I wish I'd never been born. I think I have a picture of the uh, conversation happening there. You know, James Stewart. I can't do a James Stewart in person. I, I wish I'd never been born. No, that's not. <laughs> that wasn't any good. Yep, yep, yep. Not bad? Okay, good. He says, I wish I'd never been born. And then the angel says, aha, that's what I'm going to do. So he grants his wish, and then he shows him the whole town. This is what it would be like if you weren't born. Oh, you want to see your brother? Your brother's not here. You weren't here to save him when he fell in the lake. Oh, you want to see that pharmacist? Oh, he's in prison because you weren't there to save him. Oh, you want to see this person that... uh, uh, and, and down the line, and then he ends the, the movie just so excited because he realizes it's, this is a wonderful life. It's amazing to be alive. This is amazing. And uh, when I think about Christmas, I share that because if you're like me and you're not yet in the Christmas spirit or you're not yet uh, remembering those truths um, or you're stuck looking at it in just a sentimental, holly jolly time or maybe you're just too busy to get into it, I think one of the things that will help you think about the truths of Christmas more than anything else is if you ask this question, what if Jesus wasn't born? What would, it, what would my life be like if we didn't get to come here on a Sunday morning and sing about the light of the world and sing about Emmanuel, that God has come to be with us? And so for the next few minutes today, I, I want to look at some of the ways that this message of Christmas has changed everything. And the ways it gives us comfort and the ways it gives us courage that we need. And and one of the ways that we see how Christmas has changed everything is through this text that we read today, Matthew 1. Our passage today 
you know, normally when you think of a, a passage on Christmas, you think of Mary or you think of, you know, uh, little six-pound, eight-ounce sweet baby Jesus. Um, but this, this passage, sorry, it took me a while to get that out. Um, this passage is focusing on Joseph and on what the angel says to him, and it tells some amazing details about what is going to happen. And I want to draw your attention really for the rest of this message to one word. Um, that seems like not enough for one word, right? Uh, are, are we really going to spend a whole sermon on one word, Kenny? Yes. Um, and that word is Emmanuel, which in us, uh, for English, it's three words, God with us. Because Matthew says, you're going to, he says to Joseph, um, what is happening here is from God, and you're going to name him, you're going to name him Jesus, and he says it's going to fulfill the prophecy, and you're going to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that might seem like a lot to focus on, a, a, a whole sermon to focus on one word, but can I tell you that some people have focused the majority of their lives on that phrase, God with us, and have never exhausted the resources for comfort and for hope. John Wesley, the, the great founder of the, of the Methodist church, on his dying bed, he had friends and family around him, and his last words before he passed away were this, the best of all, God is with us. Died with this phrase on his heart. And so if y'all are ready, I'm going to break down this phrase into a few parts, okay? We good? Yeah. All right. God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. First point, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. You might hear that and think, well, duh, Kenny. <laughs> Where do you think we are? We're at church, right? But here's the thing. It's pretty striking from the perspective of Matthew, who's a first century Jew. And he's writing in this passage that the angel said, what is happening with Mary is that's from God. You haven't been with her yet, so you know it's not you. You might be wondering if it's someone else, but it's not. It's from God. It's from the Holy Spirit. So in essence, he's saying God is the father of this child. And he says, this is what was prophesied by Isaiah. In verse 23 there, she'll give birth to a son. Uh, sorry, I'm reading the wrong verse. Verse 23, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That was prophesied hundreds of years earlier by Isaiah. Isaiah had said that. And the reason this is significant that a first century Jew would be telling us straight ahead that Jesus is God is this, because Jews are the most unlikely group on the face of the planet that would ever believe a person, a human being, could be God. They would never believe that. See, you have Eastern religions in the day, pantheists, who, where everything is God. They it would be easy for them to believe it because they believe in avatars. They believe in people that have a higher God consciousness. And okay, that's, that person is God or that person is the son of God. They could say that easily. And then the Greeks and the Romans, they're polytheists. So they believe in many gods. And it was easy for them to think, you know, the gods come among us. Sometimes they dress up like humans and they hang out with us. So it would be easy for them. But the people who would... Be the least likely to ever say that a human being is God is first century Jews. Because the God of the Bible is a personal being, but he's infinite. 
He's above, he created creation, but he is above it. He's outside of it. He rules over it. In fact, they wouldn't, they respected and revered God so much, not only would they never call a person God, they wouldn't even say the name of God, Yahweh, out loud, out of reverence for God. But Jesus, in that culture, did something that was so convincing that he convinced his closest followers, who were all Jewish, by his life, by his claims, by his resurrection, that he was not just a prophet who came here to tell them how to find God, but he was God himself who came to find us. And it might be one thing if Matthew just said it, but the other New Testament authors said it. John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's referring to Jesus is the, is the uh, pre-existent Son of God, the eternal second person in the Trinity, He has always been. He's never had a beginning. There was never a time when he wasn't God. And then in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John says it, but that's not enough. Paul says it. Paul says in Colossians, All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him in bodily form. And then Peter said it. Peter said he purchased the church with, that the church was purchased with God's own blood. God's own blood. Throughout the New Testament, directly and indirectly, people are saying Jesus is God. And it might not mean much if Jesus didn't claim to be God, but he did. He did in all sorts of direct ways and indirect ways. And let me just highlight a couple. For one, he forgave sins. Jesus went around forgiving sins. And that might sound... That's normal to us, but think about it, all right? So if, if Joe punches John, and I use names of people in this church, but I don't think you... But if Joe punches John, and then I show up and I say, Joe, your sin is forgiven. Doesn't work, does it? They're either going to laugh at me or they might punch me, but I'm not going to forgive the sin. Why? Because the only person who can forgive Joe is the one who got punched, which is John, the one who got sinned against. So how, if Jesus isn't God, how arrogant of him to show up and say to someone, your sins are forgiven, unless he is saying all of your sins are against me because I am God. Jesus forgave sins. Another thing that Jesus did is, you notice throughout the Bible, every time, almost every time an angel shows up to a prophet or something like that, they just hit the deck. <laughs> they fall to their faces and and they're afraid, but they also, a lot of times afterward, they'll start worshiping. And every time without fail in the Bible, the angel says, stop, don't worship me. I'm just a creature. I'm a, I'm a really different creature, <laughs> but I'm just a creature like you. I'm not the creator. The only one worthy of worship is the one who created us all. But when, Jesus, when Thomas comes to Jesus and gets down on his knees and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus didn't stop him. Jesus didn't say, don't do that. Only God deserves worship. Why? Because he deserves our worship. Amen? Amen. Even the idea of the Jewish people in that century all of a sudden worshiping a human being, any human being, would be absolutely unthinkable. But that's exactly what they did. And why? Why did they do it? Because they saw something in Jesus' character that matched his outrageous claims. 
They saw something in who he was and what he did that even though this sounds insane, this is, this is the only thing that makes sense. And even though we don't understand it, just like I can look at the sun through a filter, I'm looking at God through a human filter. This is the son of God. It's an amazing truth of Christmas that I think we don't let it shock us when we remember it. It's too often that we just assume it. There's a quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is as fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. Many have argued that the incarnation is the greatest miracle in the Christian faith, even greater than the resurrection. Because once you believe this, that this little baby is God in the flesh, everything else makes sense. It makes sense that he would do miracles. It makes sense that he would forgive sins. It makes sense that he would receive worship. It makes sense that he would send us out to make disciples. So if Jesus is God, what are the implications? And I'll Hit two before we go to the next point. First thing is this. It creates a crisis. Creates a crisis. If Jesus is God, every single one of us has a fork in the road when we decide what are we going to do with Jesus. How are we going to react with Jesus? You see this in the Gospels because wherever he goes, there's extreme reactions to him. You've got some people who he comes, he comes into town and they are so angry at him, they want to kill him. And they start, it's not just a thought in their heads. They like get together and say, how can we kill him? And then you have other people who he, he comes on the scene and they're, they're so afraid that they say, depart, get away from me. And then you have other people who when he shows up, they, they fall down and they worship him and they're overwhelmed with passion for him and his teaching and for what he represents. Why is that? Because if he is who he says he is, then you have to center your whole life around him. You have to make a decision. It is a crisis. What am I going to do with my life if Jesus is God? And this is what explains the uniqueness of Christianity. This is what is, is so often so annoying to those who are not yet believers. You say, isn't that arrogant? Isn't that narrow-minded that you think your faith is right? Isn't that narrow-minded and, and arrogant for you to push your beliefs on other people and to evangelize to them? And we see, we see that in, in the last few weeks, the young man who, who lost his life uh, reaching out to a tribe in India. And uh, that's a very complex situation. But if you read the comments on all the Facebook feeds, you would see how our world thinks about evangelism. Isn't that arrogant? But it, I would say it's not narrow-minded. Christianity is not narrow-minded. It's a deeper diagnosis of the human problem. You see, other religions, their founders are great teachers, are great men, are great prophets. And they have a teaching, and they say, if you want to find the way to God, this is what you have to do. 
I found the way to God. I'm here to teach you and show you the way. But if Jesus is God, that's unique. No other religion in the world, their founder claims to be God, and the, believer, and the people around them actually believe it and worship. Is this tracking? Other religions say your performance and your morality will earn you the connection with God. But Christianity says, no, you, you can't earn it. You can't perform well enough. Your actions, haven't you lived long enough to see that those don't measure up? That you can't even live enough to your own standards. No, you can't be good enough to find this path to God. You need God to come down to you and to rescue you. That's why when it says a light has dawned upon the world, it doesn't say a light came from within the world. No, we, we were dark and we needed a light to come in and save us. That's the message of Christianity. And here's how that's, uh, uh, let me explain what I mean by a deeper diagnosis. If, if you have, if you're having health issues and you go to three doctors and they all say, um, you know what, it's actually not that bad. Just drink a lot of water and get a lot of sleep. You'll be good in a few weeks, right? And then you come to me and I happen to be a doctor in this situation or uh, let's say you come to Dr. Steven, and, 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 and he tells you, you know what? Actually, you have a life-threatening condition, and if you don't take this medicine, there's a good chance that you may die in a few months. Now, here's the thing. Is that narrow-minded? It's not narrow-minded. It's just a darker diagnosis, and you can either trust them, or you can think that the other doctors are right, or you can... Uh, Maybe find out that somebody's wrong, but it's not narrow-minded. It's just saying, here's what the problem is. The truth that Jesus is God creates a crisis. We have to decide what to do with him and whether or not we will believe him. Because if we do believe he is who he says he is, it changes everything in our lives. Amen? But it's not only a crisis. It also is the source of our, of our hope, of our greatest hope. How is that? Because if Jesus is God, if he's Emmanuel, God with us, if he came here to be with us, then that means that this world, our world, everything that we can see is not all that there is. It means that there is life after death, that there is love after death, that there is hope no matter what dark situation you face because he is who he says he is. No matter how much you fail over and over, there is hope for you. No matter how much other people have failed you, there is hope for every situation. Tim Keller says it this way, talking about the fact that God came down to us. A God who is only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was an all-accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered at all with Christmas. There's no point but the biblical God, the one we're talking about today and worshiping today, is holy, infinitely holy. So our sin matters. It can't just be shrugged off. 
or dusted off. It has to be dealt with. But he's not only holy, he's infinitely loving. And he knew that we couldn't handle it on our own. And so he came to do what we can't do. And he didn't send someone else to do it. He came. Because Jesus is God, we have all the hope in the world. All the hope in the world. So part one, Jesus is God. Part two, Jesus is God with us. Emphasis on the with us. Jesus is God with us. Because he is fully divine, but he's also fully human. Fully God and fully man. Philippians 2 has a teaching that says he, he emptied himself. That he laid aside his glory to take on the nature of a servant. That he came to do that, to be with us. So the, the word we talk about for Christmas is incarnation. That, that the word put on flesh and dwelt among us so that we would know Emmanuel, God with us. What does that mean? It means a few things. First thing, that in Jesus we see what God is truly like. That's why Jesus said to his closest followers, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John 14. What does that mean? The way he taught. The way he cared for people. The way he ate meals with people. The way he treated children. The way he treated widows. The way he treated the poor. The way he treated the rich. The way he treated the outcast. The way he treated the religious the way he healed, the way he poured himself out, the way he pointed people to God. When you want to know what God is like, we get to look at Jesus. And we can look at him because he came to be with us. Amen? It also means that we have infinite comfort for any time that we suffer. infinite comfort. Hebrews 2 says it this way, that when Jesus was made like us, he was made fully human in every way. And in verse 18, it says, because he himself suffered when he was being tried and tested, he is able to help those who are being tried and tested. You guys see that? Because he suffered when he was being tempted or tried and tested, he's able to help us when we are being tested tempted, or tried and tested. Have you ever thought about why we have uh, support groups? And I don't just mean in the church, but just as, a, as human beings. Why do we have support groups? Why are those so important? You know, because when you're happy and everything's going well, you feel connected to other people, right? You feel like you're part of the, of the human race. There's not an issue there. But when you're going through something, when you're going through something, what happens? We get isolated. We begin to feel like no one understands what I'm going through. You, you don't feel connected to other people. You feel like no one gets it. No one knows. But then you meet someone who went through something just like what you went through. Yeah. Yeah. And then what happens? You connect, right? 
and then you build this bond of trust and you can pour your heart out to them and you feel like you have someone who's walking with it, with you through it. You guys know what I'm saying? Jesus has been through what we've been through. There's a quote from St. Augustine from the, uh, the fifth century. It says this. It's so beautiful. Man's maker was made man. That's Emmanuel, God with us. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread, remember Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. That the bread might hunger. That the fountain might thirst. The light sleep. That the way might be tired on his journey. That the truth might be accused of false witnesses. That the teacher might be beaten with whips. The foundation be suspended on wood. That strength might grow weak. That the healer might be wounded. That life might die. Christmas says that Jesus suffered. And that he actually triumphed through his suffering. And Christmas shows us a God that's not like any other God from any other faith because it shows us a God who has suffered. A God who has been everywhere that you have been. Have you felt betrayed? So did he. Have you felt lonely? So did he. Have you faced death and had to deal with the death of others? So did he. You say, no, 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 Kenny. There's times when I prayed and I reach out to God and it feels like he doesn't answer my prayer. Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass if there's any way. He's felt unanswered prayer. You say, no, 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 no Kenny. Kenny, I feel, I feel distant from God and abandoned by God. What do you think Jesus was saying when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He has been there. God has been all the places you have been. And you wouldn't know that if it wasn't for this, God with us. Even if you're in darkness right now, he's been in darkness and greater, and he's there to help you through it. Amen? Amen. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can rely on him. That's why you can pour your heart out to him and know he has the power to comfort you and to strengthen you because he's been there. See, the, the incarnation didn't merely just happen to let us know the first point that Jesus is God and that God exists. It happened to let us know. It, it happened to bring us near, bring us near to him, him to us, us to him, so that we could have a relationship with God. We can have a relationship, a very personal, intimate relationship with God. That should stun us. We should be flabbergasted. Just wanted to say that word. <laughs> we should be in awe. Think about, think about Moses. Think about Moses, the, one of the great heroes, one of the great fathers of the faith. He asked to see God's glory straight up. I want to see you. And he got turned. He was told that if that happens, you will die. So you can see my, you can see my backside. You can see my hind parts. You can see where I've been. Go hide behind that rock, and then you can see where I've been. But you can't see me because you will die. You can't handle it. 
And even what he did experience of God's glory, he would come down from the mountain and the peop- his face would be glowing and he would just have to hide in a tent <laughs> with a veil <laughs> because people couldn't handle it. What do you think Moses would say if he heard us saying today, Emmanuel, God with us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the one and only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses, John 1.18, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses would be like, you guys, this is amazing. Do you understand what you have? How is this not the joy of your whole life? How is this not the driving force that makes sense of everything that you do? This is what you have. You know, and in the Old Testament, oftentimes when God showed up, it was terrifying. It was a tornado, or it was a whirlwind, or it was a fire, and it was shaking in our boots, right? But this time, he comes as a little baby. Why is that? Why has God come as a baby this time? Because he came not to bring judgment, but to bear our judgment. It came not to build a barrier between us and God, but to tear it down with his blood and with his body so we can be with him and he can be with us. Amen? Jesus is God. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. The passage shows us one of the things that's necessary if we're going to have a relationship with this unique God, this God in the flesh. And that is courage. We're going to need courage. Think about the message that Joseph is receiving in this passage and that Mary is receiving. What is it? What does this announcement mean for them? They're not married, they're engaged, and she's pregnant. And Joseph is finding out. And what is he going to think? Well, what is everyone else going to think? Okay, well, either you guys have been sleeping together, which was way different in that culture, was not acceptable at all. It's not like our culture where that would be normal and commonplace. But in that culture, no, that you would never. So either that or she's been unfaithful to you. She's been with someone else. And in that kind of culture, all of a sudden you're shamed, you're, you're excluded, you're rejected, you're a second-class citizen forever. You're, everyone's going to know in your family, in your clan, in your town, everything. Everyone's going to know that the rest of your life. And yet the angel says, no, you're going to marry her, and this is from the Holy Spirit. And think about Joseph trying to tell his friends that. <laughs> Joseph's hanging out with his guy friends like, dude, Either you guys have been, or she's been. And Joseph's like, no, it's from the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And they're like, yeah. (laughs) They're either going to think he's crazy or he's gullible. But if if you're going to be with Jesus in this passage, you can basically kiss your good reputation goodbye. It's not going to make everything happier. It's actually going to make some things harder. Actually, if you go to chapter 2, they get ran out of the country because of danger. It's going to take courage. It took courage 
for them, it's going to take courage for Christians today. Courage, a few ways. Courage to be rejected by the world. Courage to bear the world's disdain. Just like Joseph's friends would have thought, oh, you're crazy or you're gullible. We face that all the time here. Oh, you believe Jesus is God? Oh, you believe he forgives your sins? Oh, you believe those miracles happen? Okay, yeah. Whatever works for you. It's crazy. (laughs) It's going to take courage. It's also going to take courage to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. If Jesus is God, only he can be your Savior. But if Jesus is God, it means that only he can be your Lord. That that contrary to how our culture is, it says, to your own self be true. That is the number one goal. Don't let anyone tell you who you are. No, you're going to have to say, I lay that down. In the passage, we see that in this, because the the angel says, you're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to save his people from their sins. And we read that, and we think, yeah, that's great. I love that part of the story. That's a quaint little verse. But we don't think about it through the lens of what's happening here. This is a patriarchal society. The right to name the children was the father's absolute right. And it was a symbol of the authority that he has over his family and over that child. But God says, no, you're not going to name him Joseph. I'm going to name him. You're not going to be his manager. He's going to be your manager. You're not going to be his Lord. He's going to be your Lord. Sometimes people say, you know, I want to be Christian, but not if it means X and Y and Z. Not if it it means I have to change this habit or I have to give up this thing that I like. That means you're trying to come to Jesus on your own terms. That means you're coming with your conditions. But when you come to Jesus, you have to drop your conditions. You have to drop your terms. You can't ever say, I'll obey you if... As soon as you get to the if, it doesn't matter what follows. <laughs> the if. When you say that if, you're asking him to be your advisor or your consultant, not your Lord. And if Jesus is God, no one else can be your Lord. Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. But here's the thing. That's hard, and that's an ongoing journey, but it's a good and beautiful and true journey because he made us. He, he's not on some power trip. <laughs> he's on a goodness trip. <laughs> he wants to heal you. He wants to set you free. He wants to change and shape you from within, and we're never going to experience what we need from him most unless we have the courage to let him be Lord of our lives. Unless, unless we say, you know what, I'm not going to name my life, you're going to name me. You're going to call me who I am, and I'm going to be who you say I am, God. We need him to name us. And finally, in order to know Jesus personally, you're going to have to have courage to admit you're a sinner. And that's not just the, the non-believers here, that's That's us who are believers. we got to have an ongoing courage. None of us can come to Jesus unless we're willing to say, I am a moral failure, and I have failed over and over again. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself, and I need God to rescue me. And 
That takes courage because it means you don't get to think of yourself in the same way that you always have. But what you get is so much more. You get grace, you get forgiveness, you get new life, you get a new identity. And how do we get that strength? How do we get the courage to say yes to Jesus in our lives and let him be the center of it if that's what it means? Well, you get it by looking at Jesus. If you think it takes courage to be with him, look at the courage it took him to be with us. All the glory, all the heavenly glory to come down and be a baby and not even able to speak, to feel pain, to know that he came to die for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. To know that he came to suffer for my sins, and yet he did it. Not only did he know it, he thought it was worth it for you and for me. No other God in in the history of the world has had to have courage. But the Christian God has courage. And when you look at that, when you look at all that he faced for you willingly with bravery and with courage and holding on to God for you, when he faced the darkness for you, that will let you face whatever darkness is in your life. That will give you the courage to say, God, I I know that I cannot be Lord of my life. You must be Lord of my life. I know that not everyone's going to applaud when I follow you, but it's worth it to follow you and be your disciple. When you see the way that he loved you on the cross, on his death, his body broken, his blood poured out, to forgive our sins, to give us new life. When you see that, that draws the love out of you and you'll have the courage to say, be the center of my life, Lord. You are God. You are God with me. I need that comfort. I need that comfort that only comes from you. And you can experience that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for another opportunity to be here today, gathered with the people of God. We cannot fully comprehend this truth, Lord. We can only set markers around it and stand in awe of the mystery and the majesty of this truth that God is with us, that you are Emmanuel. And Lord, I pray for people here today who don't yet know that truth. God, I pray that you would awaken faith I pray that they would be moved to repent and turn from sin, turn from any way of doing life that's, a, that's, that's uh, apart from you, and they would turn to you, God. And I pray for those who are here who have heard it a lot and believe it and are living it. I pray that you also would give them the joy and the courage to say and to be reminded that you are God with us, that you have been everywhere we have been, that you have the comfort that we need, and you have the hope that our soul is truly longing for. God, I pray against distractions now as as you move in the power of the Spirit. We invite you to move in our hearts, move in our lives. Help us to respond well. Bless these few minutes that we have together in your presence. Do the work that, that only you can do, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Amen.